I want to um, tell you, many of you were with us on Friday night at our Good Friday service, and it was a wonderful service. And right at the conclusion of that service, I received a, a text from a fine young man in our fellowship. His name is Kyle Warnock. Um, he's been involved in teaching here in uh, various capacities with the youth, and, and uh, he sensed the Lord was giving him a, a, a word. He wasn't expecting me to read it. He certainly didn't ask that of me. But as I read it, and I get lots of things coming my direction all the time, and this one stood out to me, and I thought, you know, I believe the Lord is saying something to Bethesda through our brother Kyle. So I'm gonna read to you what he wrote me. He said, Pastor Dan, speaking of the Friday night service, he said, as we were in worship earlier, the Lord brought something to my mind. I was impressed that God has a desire to renew the hope of the church this Easter. It is as though last year the church was beaten down and became weakened, not due to a weakness of its people, but the overwhelming nature of reality. The Lord brought to my mind the idea of a blood transfusion. When someone has lost blood and gone into a dire medical situation, they need the blood that someone else gave to support them. This Easter, I sense the Lord wants to infuse hope into his church once again by the reminder that he gave his blood and was resurrected. I desire, I sensed he desires that hope in the church be restored and renewed for us to live once again. Do you receive that this morning, Bethesda? Blessed be the Lord. You ready to turn to the word of the Lord? Go with me in the word to your Bible or your device to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, where I will begin reading at verse 17. And you may be already thinking, Pastor Dan, this is Resurrection Sunday. You should be preaching from the New Testament. And uh, I will get there because I'm sure I'll be going through the whole book by the time we, the service is over. I hope you have lots of time and you brought a snack because I'll be preaching a long time today, very long time. Genesis chapter 3. Um, before I read that, I want to say that one evening this week, uh, Becky and I, it was late afternoon, we were, we were at a, a store looking over plants and shrubs to consider replacing what we had lost in the freeze a few weeks back. Did any of you lose any plants in the freeze this year? Uh, we did. Our hawthorns didn't make it. Our laurel pedlum didn't make it. It was really sad. Uh, some other things didn't make it. Um, and she was looking at, at some things uh, that we might consider for replacement. She was being careful, but she reached out to feel the leaf of a certain plant. Um, and I'm sure she was, you know, just examining it and looking for the tag to see exactly what the name of this one in case she wasn't sure and probably looking for the price of it and all that. But what she did not see was that the plant had very small but very fierce thorns on it, and it got her. It got her good. She quickly pulled her hand back and she let out a little bit of an ouch and, and, and then she spent the next couple of minutes trying to get that thorn out of her finger. And as I stood by, there was not a whole lot I could do to help her in that moment. But I, I did, I was, I was smart enough to realize that's not the moment to begin quoting scripture to her. It was just great wisdom God gave me in, in that moment. And um, so I didn't quote scripture to, uh, to her, but I will tell you, and she now knows because she sat through this in the first service. It did take me, that little experience took me back to Genesis chapter 3 because it reminded me that we still live in a world that is subject to the curse. I assume you know that. I didn't say Becky was cursing. I said, okay. 
She wouldn't do that. I said it was a reminder that we live in a world still subject to the curse. And some of you may be saying, what curse? Maybe you're, you're newer to reading the, reading the Word of God, and, I, and some of you have done it for years, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's why I'm going to take you back for just a moment to the beginning. It's why we're going to Genesis, where God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that they are in the Garden of Eden, and uh, everything, life is perfect, everything is going splendidly well, there is no sin, there's no shame, there is no death, everything is as it should be, it's luscious, it's green, sin has not entered the world until we get to chapter 3. And you know the story as well as I do. There's one tree in the center of the garden that they are not to eat from, and that's the one that, they, that she was tempted, Eve was tempted to eat from, and so she grabbed an apple off that tree, and she gives one to her husband to eat, and in so doing, they both sin according to the temptation of the, the serpent. So let's pick up the story right there. I know you know it, but let's pick up the story, and I'm going to go somewhere with this idea in just a moment. We're in Genesis 3, starting with verse 17, where God says to Adam, since you listen to your wife, I always wonder what kind of reaction that's going to get. You, you provided a little awkward moment of pause there because you weren't sure if I was, but I, where I was going. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, then the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And here it is. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. And that's where I want to wish you a happy Easter after reading that verse. But that's the origin of the curse. That's where we first know what happened. And it's the first evidence God gives us, the first evidence God provides us are thorns. That's how he says, you know of the curse, thorns and thistles. I take you now to the New Testament. We find in Matthew 27, verse 29, Scripture tells us this as Jesus is about to be crucified. Matthew 27 says, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted Hail, King of the Jews. So what happens is this. A group of the governor's uh, soldiers just uh, randomly reach down. They grab some thorn branches. They twist them into a crown of thorns. And when they place that crown of thorns upon the head of Jesus, it probably in that moment just seemed happenstance or even routine for a crucifixion or coincidental to them. But something, it was something that was done that was far more significant, far more impactful than anyone could have possibly imagined in that moment. It was something incredibly symbolic that was happening the day when they placed the very thing that represented the curse upon the head of our Savior. It was the very thing that represented sin and its consequence that was wrapped up in that crown of thorns. We've just read the story for years and years, and we know that they placed a crown that looks something like this up upon, the, upon the, uh, the head of Jesus as he's going to the cross. I'm proposing you today, to, to you today that it was much more significant than, than that which we kind of slide over as we read the story. When they placed that crown upon his head, it meant something. 
It meant something profound. It meant something extremely important. From that day until now, every time any of us see thorns, every time any of us are, are attacked by a thorn as we touch a rose bush or whatever else, it should be a reminder of sin. The thorns were introduced at the curse in Genesis 3. It is, a, it is symbolic of the curse. And these reminders are all throughout Scripture. These aren't the only places we read it. Proverbs 22.5 says, Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. And then Jesus himself in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from, from thistles? So over and over and over again, we are reminded throughout Scripture that nothing good comes from thorns. And it also that reminder is that we live in a world profoundly affected by the curse. We live in a, with constant reminders that we are in a fallen world. So... If we metaphorically use this idea of thorns and we apply it to your life and to mine, what are thorns for you? What are thorns? It's those things that poke us, those things that, that prick our skin, like what happened to Becky this week, things that prod us and, and hurt us, and, and things that produce pain, things that shock us and, and will even, uh, because of what happens when you touch it, cause us to, uh, to draw back. And one of the difficult parts of pastoring, for any of us on staff, and I'm sure any pastor anywhere, on a regular basis, we, is this. We see bad things happen to good people. You see it too. We see it all the time. And almost everyone who passes through my office in counsel or asking for counsel will eventually ask the question, Pastor, can you give me an answer? Why? Why is this happening? There's a desperate need within for me to reconcile these circumstances in my life. I am reaping a harvest of that which I did not sow. I sowed other seed than this, and yet this is what I'm getting, and someone needs to tell me why for me to be able to go on. Why did my loved one die? Why did the child get cancer? Why did I have a miscarriage? Why did my marriage have to end? Why is there so much turmoil in our lives, in our home? Why would God allow these things to happen? And all of it, church, is a simple reminder to us that we live in a fallen world as a result of the curse, and we all live with thorns. And guess what? We're in good company. Even the Apostle Paul, and you know this, who is responsible for writing a major part of the New Testament, he talks about thorns, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians 12, he says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And then he says this, three different times I begged the Lord. I didn't just casually ask. I begged the Lord to take that thorn away. It is a significant statement coming from the Apostle Paul. And I have no doubt that your life, as well as my life, echoes the same thing. We could say, three times I begged the Lord to heal my loved one, probably far more than three. Three times I begged God, I pled with God to save my marriage. Three times I begged the Lord to help me get rid of this addiction. Oh God, help me. Three times I pled with God to 
you fill in the blank. You know what your thorn is. It's the thorns of life. Why are they here? As a result of the curse. It's the pain of life. And Paul's struggle with it was real. Just like your struggle and my struggle with it is real. He, he said in Romans 7, 15, he said, I don't, I don't even understand myself. I don't, I don't get it. For, for, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. And the very thing I don't want to do, the thing I hate, that's what I find myself doing. And then just a few verses later in verse 24, as he's coping with this idea and thinking about the, the, the torment within him, he says, oh, what a wretched man, or oh, what a miserable man that I am. Why is he saying this? Because what we see in Paul is the same thing that you and I are reminded of regularly. We live in a fallen world. We are constantly reminded that we live in a world profoundly affected by the curse of sin and the thorns of consequence. Therefore, I bring a question to you. I do that almost every time that I stand in this pulpit. I happen to believe every good sermon will challenge you with a question that you should take within and you should ask yourself. And the question I'm asking you is this. What thorns are in your life? What thorns are in your life? And you can't sit there and say, I don't really think I have any, because let me tell you something. If you're breathing, you got thorns. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. And again, your thorn may be completely different than mine, but thorns are those things that poke you. Thorns are those things that cause you pain. Thorns are the things that you don't understand and you will plead with God three times or more to remove them from you. Thorns are the things that keep you awake at night. You lay down and you're trying desperately to go to sleep, but your mind is racing with all of the angst and the trials and the issues going on in your life. That's a thorn in your flesh. Thorns are the things that torment us, like disappointment disappointment in other people, unfulfilled expectations or confusion or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness. And most of us have no problem at all identifying the thorns of our life. Thank you for going with me in this thought because I, I've come to a point. Having brought you this far in thought, I want us to consider specifically the crown of thorns which was placed upon the head of Christ Jesus at his crucifixion. If we're going to talk about a crown of thorns, I ask you to give me just a moment to mention three specific things that are important things to know about a crown. Number one, a crown is heavy. Can you say that with me? I'm not speaking of physical weight of the crown, though I know that they can be heavy, so I'm told. But the heaviness of a crown is a far far different kind of weight. I did find this statement from Shakespeare's play in King, in King Henry IV where he says this, heavy is the head upon whom the crown rests. Heavy is the head upon whom the crown rests. It's not talking about physical weight. It's talking about the responsibility that goes with a crown. Uh, if a crown represents a territory, for example, it means that every square inch of that territory is now your responsibility. What happens is your responsibility. 
when we place that crown upon your head, if you are crowned the one in authority over that. And there's a heavy, heavy weight that goes with that. And so think about it, church. They placed a crown on the head of Jesus which represents the curse of sin. Everything about this, it represents the curse of sin. How heavy was that? How daunting was that? My sin, past, present, and future. Your sin, past, present, and future. The sins of every person who has gone before us and all who will come after was placed on the head of Jesus the moment they laid that crown upon him. But there are words that First Peter gives us. Uh, in his, Peter gives us in his first epistle that I think are significant, and it's this. It says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and, and live for what is right. He personally carried. Would you say those two words? Personally carried. There's significance to that. If you, if you look at it in the Greek, carried in this verse comes from the Greek word anaphero, which means to take upon oneself a load to be, to be carried. Choosing to take it upon himself the load to be carried. That's what this, this verse is telling us when it says he personally carried. That means he chose to carry our sins and our sorrows. He chose the path to Calvary, which included the cross. He chose to die a rugged, cruel death to pay the penalty for our sin. And it doesn't really matter this morning as we come to Resurrection Day if you have heard this story a thousand times, if you're hearing it for the first time. Let me tell you, Easter is our most profound reminder of the price that Jesus paid for us. And church, we must never forget the price that he paid. I said he, we must never forget the price Jesus paid. That's why we go to the table of the Lord so often. It's not, it's not with regularity, but occasionally I'll say, why do we, do, why do we observe communion so much on, on, in our prayer service? It's every Sunday night. You want to tell me we can do that too often? There's no way. We need to be reminded every day, every hour of every day, that Christ paid an enormous price for our sin. Can the church say amen today? While it is such a simple truth that maybe you've known all of your life, you and I need to look at it square in the face and remember that Jesus was crowned with our sin, and that crown was a heavy crown. Something else I want to draw your attention to when it comes to a crown. A crown was not only heavy, but a crown is costly. There was an enormous price to be paid to wear that crown. Romans 6.23, which you know well, says, for the wages of sin is which means that when sin is there, death is required, and the cost of sin is death. But as we used to sing years ago, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed, don't know about you, but I needed someone to wash my sin away. Is that true for anybody else in the house today? Galatians 3.13, Paul tells us this. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And we call that good news? 
The good news is incredible, but it is messy. It was bloody, and it was costly, and we never shall forget that Jesus paid it all. But I ask you to listen carefully to this third point about a crown. This is an important one to know and to remember. That is this, the crown rests on the one who reigns. Why don't you say that with me? The crown When a crown is placed on the head of someone, there is great symbolism involved. Listen to me carefully. The crown placed on the head is symbolic of the dominion over which it rules. The crown placed, for example, on the head of Queen Elizabeth II of England indicates this, that in every square mile, every square inch of the United Kingdom and 15 other Commonwealth realms, she reigns. She is in full authority, and the crown she wears makes that abundantly clear. I find it incredibly interesting that some Roman soldiers just doing what they do at a crucifixion, messing around, mocking, spitting upon our Lord, going through all the normal, regular practices of a crucifixion process, they randomly reach down and, and found some thorns, and they, and, and they picked them up. And those were thorns, by the way, created by the Creator who's upon whose head they were about to place that crown. And they twisted those thorns into a crown. And when you think about what it represents, then I have to ask you this. What kingdom did the crown of thorns represent? Well, I would propose to you it represents the kingdom of sin. It represents the kingdom of shame. It represents the kingdom of regret. It represents the kingdom of our brokenness. And they placed it upon his head. And without even knowing what they were doing, they were symbolically saying, over every kingdom of darkness, Jesus, you reign. Over every kingdom of disease, Jesus, you reign. Over every kingdom of of depression and despair, you reign. Over every kingdom of this world, Jesus, you reign. Hallelujah. Without even knowing it, they were saying, in the world that is cursed, in the world of sin and sickness, in the world of every vile, filthy, ugly thing that has ever existed that has come and been set out to destroy us and to bring utter destruction, all of that, Jesus, you still reign, you still have full authority. Hallelujah. Therefore, Jesus, you are crowned King and Lord of all. Can the church say amen? Amen. There's a well-known story in the Gospel of John chapter 11. It's a story of Jesus and his good friend Lazarus who becomes sick. Mary and Martha are sisters to Lazarus and their brother becomes extremely ill, ill unto death. And so they are experiencing the thorn. They are experiencing the curse. Uh, They are experiencing a loved one becoming sick and, and, and dying. And so what did they do? They did as Paul talked about. They, they set out to beg of, they set out to plead with Jesus for that thorn, that, that cursed thing that was in the, the, in the life of their brother to be removed. 
They were pleading with God for that to happen. Why? Because they knew that Jesus was the healer. They had seen it. They had heard him. They had heard about it. He was the healer, so they send for Jesus. And what does he do? He plays it very slowly, and he, he doesn't come when they want him to come. Maybe that's been your story a time or two. When Jesus finally shows up, Lazarus is dead. In fact, Lazarus is four days dead, and, and the, the Bible used the term, and by then he stinketh. He's, he's that dead. As Jesus finally comes near the house, Mary stays back, but Martha makes her way to the Lord. And I get the sense that it was with a rather aggressive approach that she comes to Christ to say, you know, if you had been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. I don't know why you're late, but, but, but you're late. But it is so fascinating that Jesus, use, Jesus uses this moment to introduce himself for the first time in a unique and special way. Listen to me. These ladies are experiencing the sickness of the brother. They're experiencing the death of their brother. They're experiencing, if you will, the curse of sin. They're experiencing the fallen world. And at the very moment of their intense disappointment, Jesus responded to Martha like this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Oh, somebody needs to hear this today. Those of you who fear dying, you're going to live long, long, long after you're gone from this world. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who, who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And then he ends it with a question, a very pointed, a very direct question. He looked at her and he said, do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it? Now look how Jesus is coming on the scene and introducing himself right in the middle of the curse, right in the middle of the, the tragedy of what's happened, right in the middle of the mess, right in the middle of the thorn, and he has the audacity to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And with these words, he was acknowledging the fact that those sisters were experiencing the curse. He knew that. And the pain of living in a fallen world. He knew that. But he was saying to them, I have come to introduce you to a part of me that you have never seen before, and it is simply called the resurrection. And I pray today that everyone in this house will come to the point of seeing Jesus as the resurrection, the one who was dead, but he is alive today and alive forevermore. And he was saying, and I've come today that though you are experiencing the curse, I have come to offer the reverse. For you see, we know this, that Adam introduced sin and death, but Jesus introduced resurrection life. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, that would be Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun, has begun through another man, Jesus. So just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. This is where in Scripture we see Jesus introducing himself as the cure to the curse, as the answer for the curse, as the one who can deal with the thorns of life. I have a favorite verse 
often quoted to me by our, my predecessor, Pastor Des. I can hear his voice in my head even today, quoting this verse from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where he said, we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. Now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Church, Jesus came to abolish the curse of sin. He came to annihilate the thorns of torment in your life. And though he was made lower than the angels for a fleeting moment, the soldiers, without knowing what they were doing, placing that crown of thorns upon his head, symbolically declared, he is king over every sickness. He is king over every disease. He has full authority over everything that hell itself has thrown at you. He has dominion and power over Satan and his schemes. If you believe that, would you please say amen this morning? And because he suffered death, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here's the reality for us today, church. We ought to be able to boldly declare from the mountaintop with everything within us, our God reigns. Blessed be the Lord. Lift your hallelujah to him this morning. The tomb is empty. Our God reigns. He's seated upon the throne because our God reigns. And you and I can be sitting in a world that's cursed by sin and pain and abuse, but he reigns over it all because he is the king. And even when pain comes, we live in a fallen world, people. Even when pain comes, and it does and it will, death has been defeated, for we will spend eternity in heaven. Just as Jesus said to Mary and Martha, even though we die in this life, those who believe in Christ there is a clause there. Those who believe in Christ will never die, for Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. Bless his name. He reigns over the curse of brokenness. He reigns over the curse of the fear in your life. He reigns over the curse of doubt that you deal with. He reigns over the curse of sickness and disease. He reigns over the devil and all of his schemes, everything that he would throw at you. Nothing that hell has can overcome what Christ has done for you. And whatever is keeping you up at night, whatever is poking at you, whatever thorn is pricking you deeply, Jesus, the resurrection and the life, has come to say, I am the king over that also. So we've come to what I call the so what moment of this message. So what? I, there's lots of times I've listened to sermons and I've gone, that's good, so what? So now, so what do you, what do you want me to do with that? I believe every sermon ought to ask you some probing questions. I believe every sermon ought to come to the so what moment. Well, we're there right now. Let me simply remind you this. Jesus turned a consequence of death into a commencement of life. What do you mean by that? Because there was a consequence. Sin had and has its consequences. And Jesus turned a consequence into a commencement. Now, we all know what a commencement is, don't we? We will have graduation commencement exercises right here in this room for Bethesda Christian School just eight weeks from today. Commencement is typically when you graduate from something. That's how we have relegated that term to that. And you, you wear a, a, a gown and a cap with a tassel, and, and the general perception is that it's the finish of something. It's an odd use of that word when you think about it. But we think, well, the final exams are over, wonderful. 
The papers that you had to write are all turned in, great. But the actual definition of commencement is this. It's a new beginning. It's the start of something. Commence, hello? Commencement, it's a new, it's the start of something. And you graduates who are excited because you think you're about to be finished, let me just tell you, you ain't finished with nothing yet. Now you got to go on to college, or you, you got to get out and get a J-O-B. You might have heard of that. You're just about to start something. You're just, you're just getting going. It's a commencement. Something is starting. And this is why Jesus came, Bethesda. It's why he suffered on the cross. It's why he rose from the grave. He came to give us a new beginning. And I think there are people in this room this morning who need a commencement. You need a fresh start, and it's available to you in Jesus Christ today. But let me just tell you something very quickly about this fresh start. Again, in uh, Peter's first epistle, he says this, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has... That was not good at all. If you can't do better than that. <laughs> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us new birth. He has given us new birth. You can't earn it. You can't afford it. You can't pay the price. He's given it to you. You can't bear the weight of it because it's way too heavy for you to bear. Jesus has given it as a gift, new birth into a living hope through his resurrection from the dead. This is true for everyone who says yes to the Lord Jesus, everyone who's willing to surrender their life to him and make him the Lord of their life. Basically saying, Lord, you're the boss. You're the one in charge. But I want you to really look at verse four. He has given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance. How many of you would vote yes on receiving an inheritance? Let me see. I think most of us would say, I vote yes on, on inheritance that's coming my way, right? Well, you actually do have an inheritance waiting on you in heaven. And even though any of us would enjoy receiving an inheritance while in this life, Here's what can be promised to you. If you receive inheritance in this life, it will be a great blessing, but it will perish, it will spoil, and it will fade. That's what the word of the Lord tells us. But look at the promise that we have as believers. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. Hallelujah. And then he finishes the verse by personalizing it. Probably the two most important words are here at the end. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It wasn't some generic for us. It wasn't, no, he is personalizing. It's kept in heaven for you. Which tells me that we can be reminded today that even though we face death, even though we lived in, live in a cursed world, even though there is pain and sorrow, there's an inheritance locked away in heaven just waiting on you. It's got your name on it, friend. Somebody say hallelujah. For you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
with the Lord Jesus, the one who's King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who rules over all of this universe. But I can't leave this verse in 1 Peter without drawing attention to two distinct words. He's given us new birth into a living hope. Would you say that, living? You know, we sang about that this morning in worship, living hope. Also, when I think about that, it's the prophetic word that Kyle Warnock gave us, that God wants to renew the hope of the church in this season of the resurrection. How many would like to have hope renewed in your life? Okay, two of you. What about the rest of you? (laughs) We need a renewal of hope within us. In this season we've walked through this thing called coronavirus, I've never seen hope plummet like it has in this last year. Thank God we're coming out of it. Thank God for newness of life. Thank God for freshness. Living hope. There's all kinds of things you can put your hope into. You can put your hope in relationships. You can put your hope in your money. Put your hope in your bank account. You can put your hope in your career. But I'm here to remind you the only hope that you have that's still alive and is a living hope is the Lord Jesus. That's your only living hope. He is your living hope. He's alive, the tomb is empty. And you and I get the privilege of serving a living hope. Can you say, bless the Lord? Bless the Lord. So as Jovan and the choir come to close out this service, here's my two questions for you this morning that I'm asking you to personalize. The first question is this, and I've already, I've already uh, mentioned both of these questions. What are your thorns? Not your neighbor, not your spouse. What are your thorns? What is poking you? What is pricking your skin? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is producing pain in you? Here's what I want you to know this morning. Whatever it is, the crown of thorns was placed upon the head of Jesus. And when that crown of thorns was placed upon his head, that gave him full dominion and full authority over whatever it is that you're facing, no matter how cursed it is. That ought to be good news to you today. Second question is this. It's the same question Jesus asked of Martha. And so, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Not because your mama told you, not because your daddy told you, not because anybody else told you. you, Have you looked at that and do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Whatever cursed thorn of death is facing you, whatever it is, are you willing to believe that the resurrected Christ can speak life, speak life to your circumstance? There's another way of saying it, and it's this. Are you willing to believe for it? In Jesus' name.